everyone welcome back to the third place we are fresh out of the, de the depths of hell of binding of isaac and we're soaring into the skies with ein honder uh, a game i've been very excited to talk about for the past month or so and i'm joined by an extremely special guest of mine uh someone who i've enjoyed for i think you know a few years now and that is reagan lodge and how are you doing tonight reagan I'm doing great. Thank you so much for uh, having me on. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm just an overall huge fan of what you do, not only for your appearances on TPN, but also, you know, your work as a artist, you know, working on your graphic novel. I've been keeping on an eye on your works. Like whenever I just see your, whenever you just post something from that novel, I'm just like captivated. I just want to like, I always like I'm trying to keep an eye on that just because it's like this long arching story of just like seeing this come to fruition. It's like honestly one of the coolest things to experience. Oh, thanks. That's really <laughs> awesome to hear. It's I mean, it's it's a graphic novel that's been in progress for a long time. It's yeah, it's way behind schedule, but uh, it's finally coming, getting mm -hmm. to the, the home, uh, the home stretch on it. So yeah, it's it, awesome to always encounter folks who appreciate that kind of work. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, seeing people online posting their progress on the games they're making, you know, what if it's one guy or a group of people, it, it reminds me of that. And it feels like a very homebrew sort of little uh, community of people kind of just like, excited and eager to like, see the next development going on. So yeah. I, I'm I'm just grateful for having you on. I'm, you know, as we said before, I am a huge fan of your appearances on TPN. The Xenogears episode is one of my all-time favorite because Xenogears is one of the best games of all time. Seriously. Um, I also love your Indiana Jones appearance on that episode, and I adored the appearance you had on the rebuild, the Ava rebuilds. So I'm extremely honored that you agreed to come on to talk about one of the most underappreciated games of all time. Uh, so yeah, I, I extend my full gratitude to you. Well, thanks again for having me on. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it because <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's so many people I wish I could talk to Einhunder about, but very few know anything about it. That's true. And I'm excited to get into that. But before we get into that, as per tradition of this show with the new guest is to ask them, their gaming history and i want to know where does the gaming story of reagan begin yeah so i am on the slightly older spectrum of millennials so my first gaming experience was with the nes like i was you know on the tail end of the 8-bit uh, gaming era i went you know i went on a visit to my friend chuck's house in second second or first grade and he had an nes where we where he he was playing Battletoads and uh, the uh, Batman side-scroller game that has the awesome music and very little whatsoever to do with the actual <laughs> film, you know. Much um, like any NES adaptation. Yeah. Um, and from there on, like, I was immediately hooked. Um, and then uh, I, I did not get to actually own any consoles for a long time. Uh, I was most like, I got a, a game boy in third grade when I was about eight years old. And, um, you know, I loved that to death. I was huge into Metro, the uh, super or Metroid two on that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then I got a game gear maybe two or three years later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and so I, you know, I was big into like in three game for that, uh, the mm-hmm. Jurassic park game, which again had nothing to do with the movie. It's like you play as nominally you play as Alan Grant, but he's got like this massive arsenal of weaponry and stuff. <laughs> it's, yeah, it just makes zero sense, but it was cool. Yeah, but exactly. uh, any, any opportunity I was able to take where I had, uh, friends with parents who, you know, would buy them consoles. I would do everything possible to get invited to their houses. Yeah. Um, like I remember specifically like going to the house of my friend, Tommy down on the, uh, Indian reservation. And like, we would, he introduced me to super Nintendo. Mm-hmm. That was where like things like really just blew up for me. Like I, that's where I got into star Fox, which, you know, is a huge influence yeah. later on in my graphic novel. Um, and super Metroid, which was yeah. uh, introduced me to my first video game crush, <laughs> yeah. my, my first pixelated GF, uh, <laughs> uh, who, who and, can say no to Samus. I know. Right. Yeah. I, I am a firm believer that the, uh, leotard and swimsuit Samus was vastly superior to zero suit Samus. And that's a hill that I will die on. I know. I, I, I feel like I, I conceive that argument and i can agree with that argument <laughs> i mean zero suit samus she's great and all yeah but like you can't go wrong with a leotard and like what she like green hair yeah or something oh, yeah, definitely yeah she has that kind of like you know that 80s early 90s aerobics like long butt aerobics instructor kind of look <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah and as so yeah you got sorry aside from that like i yeah so like i i would kind of hop from friend's house to friend's house depending on who had what consoles and stuff and uh i earthworm gym was like i was mega obsessed with that for a long time mm-hmm. um actually I ended up later on becoming really good friends with uh, the creator doug to naple oh Some yeah twists and turns that's um, so cool though yeah it was just a huge influence on me just you know from a standpoint of like appreciating really cartoony stuff that also had guns and violence in it, but in a weird, in a weird, just artfully done way, it was still okay for like a young kid to play. Yeah. Um, it it kind of reminds me of a uh, gunstar heroes, which, yeah. is, which I, I adore. Yeah. Like just these hyper animated games that were in a sense, pretty violent, uh, you know, you know, blowing up everything with guns and everything, but it still had that veneer of like, oh yeah, it's like a Saturday morning cartoon sort of thing, but you control it, which I think is a, it's a, it's a subgenre of game that kind of went to the wayside. And I think mm-hmm. it's sorely missed. Yeah. It was like, it was kid friendly gun violence in a way yeah. that like, you know, like how a lot of games and cartoons now it's like, if they figure like, Oh, if this is going to be for kids at all, we can't even show a firearm, not even mm-hmm. like even the bad guy can't use it or something. Mm-hmm. Or, and if it has guns at all, then it becomes like, you know, way too way over violent. There's not really like a fun, you know, middle ground anymore. It seems like, mm-hmm. um, speaking of like ultra violence, I was really obsessed with, uh, mortal Kombat as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like I remembered loving how it was one of those first games that I remember having like, because you could unlock fatalities and hidden characters and all this stuff. It just, it opened itself up to just endless fan speculation. And so, Mm -hmm. 
you know, there was like the one Mortal Kombat machine at this taco shop down the yeah. road from school. And we would, me and my friends would just come up with the most absolutely completely BS stories <laughs> about like, yeah, my, my brother, he unlocked this one like hidden level where you can uppercut a guy into lava, but there's also <laughs> spikes in the lava and just, you know, make up hidden characters that we unlocked. Of course, totally didn't exist, but <laughs> you, you yeah. can plausibly impress people with it just enough. Yeah, it, the the myth the mythicizing I don't know if that's a word, but like creating the myth of a like the supposed secrets that you had to do in order to unlock a game, mm-hmm. which ninety nine percent of the time were complete bullshit. Yeah. Like I remember, uh, in like Final Fantasy VII, there was always like the golden chocobo, the black chocobo, the <laughs> like like complete ass asinine theories or uh ways to do something but it's like the internet wasn't a fully formed concept yet so it's just like that's totally believable mm-hmm. uh even even for me in the early 2000s like a lot of this sort of stuff was very true for me like i remember twisted metal 3 and the uh, i loved flop- the twisted metal games yeah the f- uh in twisted metal 3 there was the flower power code which let you see your panties <laughs> and it's for some reason in my mind in my best friend's mind we thought like we could just see her like vagina in there like we <clears throat> thought that's what it was but it was just like oh you can just kind of see her panties but mm-hmm. like there's like a like you're creating something even more grand than like what you're actually seeing or potentially could see yeah i remember doing the same with echo the dolphin because you know back in the 90s there were no online strategy guides at least not till the late 90s and i remember just mashing at random uh save point codes mm-hmm. until just completely by chance i remember it to this day it was k c or k b a c n i remember it because i thought kabakan mm-hmm. or something that got you to the second to last level and echo the dolphin on game gear. And so that was how I was like one of the only people I ever knew to be able to be echo, um, at that young an age. Oh yeah. No, echo is a, a legendary, every echo of the dolphin is like really cool. I, I, I specifically love the dreamcast echo the dolphin Mm. courtesy of, uh, Zach Langley Chi Chi telling me about, Oh, the nice. dream the dreamcast echo the dolphin which yeah, is which is superb just you know uh, the, just the like novelty of like i'm a dolphin and mm-hmm. i get, and i get just like have pure 90s like right uh, fantasy yeah like that was just the coolest thing and it, it's still cool to this day playing something like that where it's just earnest simple like the the old environmentalism where it's just like you know save yeah save the trees and like it's like yeah save the whales save the trees like you know like clean water clean air which i mean now that would all be considered a right-wing dog whistle i guess (laughs) you know but it's like you know now it's not kind of like been replaced with a sort of browbeating kind of corporate greenwashing of just you know planet friendly Mm-hmm. branding on everything there's just there's no there's no like really lush you know uh murals anymore of like teeming jungles full of wildlife that you know you're just aching in your heart to save <laughs> from some kind of poacher villain somewhere yeah it, 
the last game from my memory that evokes that is Final Fantasy 13. Like just the hyper lush jungles and forests and all your characters just feel like they're plopped right out of like some sort of James Cameron environmentalist <laughs> message movie. Yeah. Like that that's like the last time I felt and that was like 2010 so, and that's definitely when that the last gasp of that came and went mm. I think at least to my memory. Uh but yeah, I yeah. I love your Elka. I'm glad you're an Echo the Dolphin fan. Oh yeah. And I love the music on just the oh, yeah. I remember like as a kid like actually crying when I got to the part where you you meet with a giant blue whale or whatever and he just like and it's just the saddest thing ever and you, it's just like this kind of like the elves are leaving middle earth kind of feeling mm-hmm. and like i was like what, maybe like nine or ten years old or something and it was just so you just felt so alone in that game mm-hmm. and it's like you know you meet that you meet this one like friendly like ancient advisor and he just has this kind of like fading off into you know into time kind of song yeah it, it's it's really beautiful all of them are very beautiful games and it's sad that sega's kind of like let them fade away but i guess in a sense i'm glad that they haven't been modernized to sort of the uh the the uh in the modern in quote-unquote environmentalist eye so yeah. i guess i guess it's good that they're like time capsules now mm-hmm it was it was a period to like a more like kind of fantastical and inspiring and aspirational sort of you know concern for the environment versus this just if you don't if you don't use this product uh the planet will burn <laughs> kind of kind of like horror just browbeating horror guilting kind of stuff <laughs> oh the, the good old days, I guess. Yeah. Um, but uh, from Echo the Dolphin, I, I, if I remember correctly from your Xenogears, the PS1 was a very, the Xenogears episode, you had a very big PS1 uh, connection as well. Yeah. I, I, it was through my PS2 because mm-hmm. my, bro, my, we, uh, we eventually like my, you know, we had, when we did finally get a console, it was an NES, like, <laughs> a generation behind everybody else. But, uh, and then eventually my brother who was somehow always able to score a used console somehow, Mm -hmm. uh, he managed to get an N64 and a PS2. We spent more time by far on the PS2 though. Yeah. I love, I I love the N64 for Goldeneye and Star Fox 64. Like those Mm -hmm. were phenomenal and forsaken, but, uh, Mm -hmm. but the PS2, like, you know, that's where I play. I had I had the original discs for Xenogears and something like uh, move, but yeah, that's how I played Xenogears. I we played. Um, gosh, I've even got my notes here. Um, Unreal Tournament. I poured ooh. hours of that. GTA Three. Um, well, actually, no. My okay. So my first exposure to PS the PSX was actually at my old dentist office. Mm. Be- this is before we got. Uh, the any of the PS PS uh, PSX games at home, they had Rayman and Ridge Racer. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, Rayman was just it was kind of you know sort of fun. fun and it, it was it was lush and cartoony. It was sort of like this weird like kind of 
abstract Jim Hensonism that I could yeah. appreciate. But when Ridge Racer was was in the console when I was, you know, waiting to, you know, be called into the office, like I just I the the music and just this whole like energetic frantically encouraging infinite possibilities vibe that that game gave off was it stuck with me so hard. yeah i i am glad someone finally said they're a ridge racer fan um because i ridge racer to me the franchise as a whole is like a glittering shining example of just games to me which is mm-hmm. i know to a lot of people they would say like why is a racing game that to you it's like well look at look at ridge racer beyond just the simple racing mechanics it's like they're the most some of the best aesthetics by a landslide i mean ridge racer 4 for example is like a masterpiece in terms of just setting a mood it has that um pre 9 11 optimism for the new millennium like coming ahead where it's all this sort of like uh techno uh somewhat jazz somewhat just uh this ps1 style soundtracks of the era and it's all presented in this like luscious like 3d scape space and then i also am a big fan of ridge racer 5's uh whole look it's uh equally as beautiful especially considering it was the first playstation 2 game ever made Mm. Um, i only played like the original like one and two i think mm -hmm. fortunately but just i mean the the music of the first one that's that one song everybody knows rare hero just stuck to me or stuck with me forever Mm -hmm. and i think that that was something that the ps1 games really had over nintendo was their soundtrack Oh yeah, the C the CD was one of the greatest things for games to ever get. And funny enough, because Einhander is a glittering example of the power of the PlayStation sound chip and CDs. Um, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but yeah, the the PS2. As I look at mine on my desk behind the computer, it's a it's like the greatest system ever made in my eyes. It um, really is. I I need to call my brother and see if he still has his or, or old ps2 i really hope he does yeah uh, good old sleepy joe made the price of getting a ps2 more difficult uh i got thanks brandon yeah aka I got, hitler <laughs> i got mine for a hundred dollars but now they're going for 120 so okay. it's just like yeah, it, it's just like, come on, like this is truly the last days. This is truly uh, the end of you're trying to cripple gamers, and gamers will not stand for <laughs> our our old <laughs> our old our old out of print systems being made harder to harder to get. Yeah. Uh, as I say, as my my fat PS2's laser is struggling to read the blue the blue CD ROM discs, um, <laughs> which is uh, people don't understand. People don't understand the the blue disc issue on the fat PS2s, but you know that that's for that's like one of my little because it happened to me when I was a kid. My my PS2 stopped reading the blue discs at one point, and I had no idea why. I was like, uh, it broken. Like well, I can't play Burnout One anymore. 
I can't play, uh, you know, uh, my fat PS2 can't play like Final Fantasy X anymore. Like the blue, the blue disc has ruined that for me. Oh, yeah, it's so sad. Um, but yeah, it, I, 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 yeah, the PS2 greatest system ever made. Uh, they should really make a sequel to it. Um, should just call it, they should have just called the PS3 the PS2 too. Um, yeah, <laughs> probably would have probably would have sold better. Um, should they should have just kept the same shape and just like made it a little bit wider or something? Mm-hmm. Be like, like, hey, it's our brand new system, guys. Uh, it's yeah. it's definitely not a souped up PS2. I was I, like, I would buy one in a heartbeat. <laughs> I would buy if they with the the trend of all those like mini consoles. I would buy a PS2 mini. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just it depends if they actually put good games on like the uh the I got I'm one of the few people that owns uh the PS1 mini. Oh, nice. And they only put 15 games on here and <sighs> most most of them are like they're classics like, you know, Jumping Flash is on here. I think Final Fantasy 7's on here. But it's like you're missing a boatload of things but thankfully these things are really easy to break and you can just like put in all your like roms on it and basically make it an emulation machine oh sweet I'm uh yeah I, I highly recommend uh people if you're into like you know all that sort of stuff find a ps1 mini uh because they're very very easy to break apparently or you know break as in like jailbreaking them yeah um but you know your story continue past the PS2? Yeah, so then we start getting like in my PC gaming uh period where uh like I think the first like really like heavy PC gaming I well for the longest time we couldn't afford uh to buy full computer games so I would just get demo discs mm-hmm. and just like just do the equi- the gaming equivalent to just walking into Costco and having a whole lunch of nothing but free samples. And so I would just play tons and tons of demo games until I, I found something that I I could maybe like badger my dad for months on end until he would get it for me. Yeah. Um, I really got heavy into uh, real time strategy games like command and conquer red alert. Um, Yeah, I was just really big into the Command and Conquer series, uh, Myth the Fallen Lords, which a lot of people don't know about was Bungie's big thing between yeah. Halo and Marathon. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it was wild. It was, you know, this dark fantasy kind of, uh, you know, it was, it was like low fantasy, really dark, and it had these amazing animated cutscenes. It was like mm-hmm. ultra-violent, like Don Bluth, <laughs> kind of feeling stuff is yeah it's kind of like drag it felt a lot like if dragon's lair had become an ultra violent uh real-time strategy game with blood physics <laughs> um, yeah that's yeah pre pre halo bungie is a is a is a landscape that not many people talk about because they made some interesting things mm-hmm. you know yeah. marathon for me has always been very fascinating uh just like it's always interesting to look at a company before they really hit the gold mine and Bungie kind of scrapping it out in these like very un Bungie like products is, mm-hmm. you know, I think something people should be curious, like be curious about. Cause I think they're missing a lot of the Bungie story 
and also modern Bungie just makes me appreciate the older ones because I like do not give a shit about Destiny. Yeah, I I feel the same way about a lot of AAA titles. Aside from I don't know maybe Doom, uh, there's very few AAA games out there that I'm you know really invested in in any way. And mm-hmm. I like Doom because it's like it's like okay, it's Doom. It take you have to really really try hard to mess that up. All you need yeah. is just some ultra violence and a heavy metal guitar soundtrack in your set. Yeah, totally. But aside from like, that's why like almost all the games I play now are indie titles. Like I've been really big into high fleet, which it's like, if you took one of those like nineties games for like really brainy software dads who have like, they like flight simulators that have these phone book size manuals <laughs> and you, but you combine it with a, you know, a trading simulator along with, uh, you know, you have to build your own diesel punk airships and send them into battle. And, and by the way, the story is like, <laughs> it's, it takes place in this kind of like fi- this fictional version of the Re- Soviet Afghan war, except it's like this kind of czarist empire you're playing mm-hmm. as. And it has, it has a lot of like parallels to doom or no, Dune, I should say, by like Frank Herbert and, Homeworld, and it was done by like one guy, Constantine Kushitin, uh, uh, who lives and lived in like some kind of ice fishing hut off in Russia while he was making the game. And <laughs> it's it's amazing. So aside from yeah. that, I've been playing Brigador, which is a great stress ball type of mech mercenary game, mm-hmm. and Dusk. I'm really big into boomer shooters. That's that's oh, yeah. that uh, was like low poly shooters low poly and really sound mechanics and interesting mechanics like um god i'm blanking on the name of the boomer shooter from last year that caught my eye it was it, it was kind probably of in recognize the, it it's probably in the vein i think it's in the vein of blood uh God, it's. I think it starts with a C. That's all I can remember off the top of my head. Uh, cult uh, is it cultic? I think. Yes, that? yes, yes. Yeah, I've been following that one too. That looks awesome. Yeah, and funny enough, one indie game, which I think it's an indie game that caught my eye. It's not a boomer shooter, but it was a uh, recently caused some controversy on the timeline, which was that a uh, body cam shooter un- unrecorded. Oh yeah, I. I mean, it's like on one hand, like. I, I look at like super realistic graphics of like, you know, rundown warehouses. I'm like, Oh, okay. So it just looks like, mm-hmm. you know, parts of the, re- of the residential areas where I, where I grew up and stuff, you know, it's not really yeah. inspiring or exciting, but just from a tech standpoint oh, the, and the fact that this was an independent studio, that's freaking amazing. And the concept is interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. it reminds me, um, because I remember looking this up on YouTube years ago, like early YouTube, there was um, there was a mod for Crisis. I think it was called Ultra or Ultimate Crisis, mm-hmm. where it it did that sort of camera style, that free camera sort of thing, and it emulated uh, digital recorders at the time, where like the contrast was super exaggerated, and the it was like all the imagery was all the images were over sharpened to like emulate a body cam so that unrecord definitely caught my eye it also caught my eye from the fact that it has a tinge of like 
this sort of like grimy sleaziness that I've missed in games in the vein of like Max Payne one. Yeah. That kind of vigilante thriller. Yeah. And, and Cannon Lynch two, because it has like the dead body pixelation effect, which Mm. I, I am a, uh, Canaan Lynch 2 uh, Defender. That game was unfairly criticized back in the day. Um, I think a lot of people just weren't expecting something so abrasive and aggressive and just, you know, gross to play, mm-hmm. like play as. It, it really was ahead of its time. And I think some people are starting to catch on to it now, you know, almost a decade after it came out. So that one caught my eye. I think. I'm trying to think of other indie games that have caught my eye. I mean, I'm, the one indie game that I'm very excited about coming out in August is Bomb Rush Cyberfunk. Uh, that indie game, basically, that's just like, oh, yeah, it's Jet Set Radio, but it's not Jet Set Radio uh, in name, but it's basically Jet Set Radio. So that one I'm very excited about because it's it looks exactly how a modern Jet Set Radio should look like. Mm. Um I mean, if you get Hideki Naganuma, I, I, I hope I've said that's his name. If you get him to like make music for your game, I think you're already on a good path for your. I, I don't recall the name, but I'll I, if I hear, if I hear the music, I'd probably recognize it. Oh yeah, I, I recommend everyone look up Bob Bomb Rush Cyberfunk because it it looks genuinely really fun. I mean, it has the core roller skating mechanics, but they added like skateboards in as part of like your traversal system and they've they've really just nailed it from an aesthetic sense of sensibility so yeah i there's interesting indie games coming out i mean i talked about binding of isaac last week uh and that was i think our you know one of the big indie success games of the 2010s and i find it very fascinating how it became such a huge hit considering all the content that is inside it that's like genuinely like uh abject and disgusting uh but yeah uh, indie games will always have a leg up on the triple a because they're always going to do something that's not a guaranteed seller mm-hmm. uh and it's always coming from people who just have a genuine passion for making things which i will always champion yeah it's i love i like being able to see like the artists like actual or the creators fingerprint and things like you know even with mm-hmm. bugs and flaws you know I, I kind of i don't know it just sort of reminds me like okay this was made by a real person not some gigantic focus group or yeah like exactly but i i love your story through gaming i think that was a what well, as i've said many a times on the show the best part about asking about people's history is that there's always unique parts to everyone's story you know like you said with the game gear you're one of the few people i have talked to on the show who have owned a game gear yeah. like i think the there's only been like one or two other people who have said like yeah they were game gear kids back in the day uh but yeah i i thoroughly enjoyed that so i think that is good time to transition to the first part of this which of this episode which is the J- japanese invasion of the ps1 and the sort of unique experiences that came with it. Um, And it's not to, so when I say that, I don't necessarily mean like, oh, no Japanese games existed prior to the PS1. Of course not. You know, the two big console players prior to the PS1 were Japanese studios. Like, 
but they still felt like even though they were from japan they still felt, felt like the experiences still felt kind of american like they adapted their systems to be more american-like whether it be the nintendo renaming their systems and even changing the design of the snes to be more in line for america or sega just you know having a very american brand uh over here but like once sony entered the ring we saw a proliferation of really out there really different japanese games i mean it ties into the whole ethos and sort of iconography of the ps1 just this whole oasis of possibilities that were now possible we're now in 3d we're now we have cd quality audio we have all these new possibilities are right in front of us and we get you know we get the avalanche of square enix games that just are coming left and right that are you know whether it be from the jrpgs or to unique side scrollers like Einhander or stuff like Parasite Eve, which is, you know, my favorite tagline from a game, the cinematic RPG. Uh, or you get like Bushido Blade or yeah, really out there things like Chocobo Racing. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, you, you, it's not even just limited to Square Enix. You got stuff from Namco like Tekken or... You got stuff from even Sony themselves with Polyphony Digital, with Gran Turismo, uh, you know, or back to Namco, you got Ridge Racer. Like, the PS1 felt like it was so, the possibilities seemed like too much. It was like the buffet uh, amount of games. So I wanted to ask you about, you, Reagan, about this sort of period as someone who I think appreciates this era as much as I do and the sort of games of this era, what do you, what do you make of the sort of Japanese invasion that PS1 brought to us Americans? I think it, uh, one thing I, I remember pretty vividly from that period was the, the kind of texture that uh, it introduced visually to everything because I, I remember if you were if you were to play like games prior to this, um, let me try to. Th I'm trying to like describe something very visual here that's often very yeah. hard to describe in words. But I'll, I'll give you an example. When when you play Xenogears or any games where they have that kind of similar effect, where you know you're you're not in battle mode, but you're in the walking around the world mode mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, and outside the walls of whatever room you're in, it's just this black abyss or whatever. Yep. yep. I don't remember anything like that existing prior to, you know, like the Japanese invasion of PlayStation one type games. Mm -hmm. And, and the, also the way that video game music was treated was very different. It, it was a lot of times it was, it was trying to, it was usually trying to imitate either kind of like conventional film score type stuff, albeit in a, like a lower bitrate manner, you know, suitable for uh, the chipset for whatever mm -hmm. system it was going on. Uh, or they would, you know, if it was like 
you had all the Star Wars games like Dark Forces and stuff. They were just like using music that was just basically just taken from the films, just put in MIDI format. Yeah, yeah. When the PlayStation arrived, that was like the first time you had a lot of like music that was previously still kind of underground. Like, I mean, it was it wasn't impossible to find, but you wouldn't hear it on the radio. You wouldn't hear it on an MTV really. Like drum and bass, yeah, trance techno acid 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 house kind of stuff industrial mm-hmm. or video game music that actually had lyrics in it yeah it, so it, it kind of like had this weird like warehouse like grainy warehouse rave quality to the whole mm-hmm. that whole period in games that i don't i just don't i just could not ever see that coming out of the u.s sensibilities for no. game design, the the in the U.S. U.S. Game, uh, Western gaming, I feel like had had a cleaner edge to it in a, in a very nice way. Like I think of Mist, the yes. Lucas Arts point and click adventure games, like The Dig and stuff like that. Um, Earthworm Jim, to you know, use that example again. But they have a they have a very like this is the even if they weren't necessarily being like kid stuff, there was still always something like adjacently disney or hollywood about it and when you had a lot of the ps1 games coming out of japan they took a lot of just underground stuff that you know either was maybe a little bit more mainstream in japan but just nobody in the u.s had any exposure to it or they were taking stuff that existed in the west but was kind of at way out of the mainstream Mm -hmm. and then they brought it kind of into the mainstream well even then like gaming this was like, I think this was like probably the first time that gaming really started to become sort of mainstream, yes. not no longer just a nerd niche. Cause this was the PS one was like, I think the first console where, you know, jocks and nerds could be found, you know, in front of the same screen together, yeah, it, you know, mm-hmm. with stuff like metal gear solid, for example, yes. like, you know, the, the Chad at, in high school could get <laughs> into it because it's like, Oh, it, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's military action and stuff like that. Okay, cool. I, I can play that. It's, you know, it's, it's heterosexual enough or whatever. And <laughs> little did they know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Little do they know that snake was caked out. Yeah, snake was caked out in the shirtless for a good <laughs> chunk of the game. And they're talking about injecting things into him without his knowledge. I know. And then there's that whole torture sequence, which I'm sure did a lot of things to a lot of a lot of people <clears throat> me um so, yeah. <laughs> but then I it's mean, like you know then the kind of the more artsy aesthetically oriented people who would you know later on maybe go into more kind of like what we consider you know they would be from the more comic booky or anime dork kind of spheres which i had a, a foot in for sure mm-hmm. you know could appreciate it because it's like oh this has this is all that cool stuff that you know we've been seeing on these anime vhs's but can never, you know, we, we can never just like get on a shelf at Target or something until now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is a certain edge quality, like not just in the sort of uh, aesthetic sensibility, but in the literal like graphics sense, like everything had a sharp edge to it, which I I mentioned back on my Spyro episode with Ryan, like what made the ps1 so cool even to today is like everything 
especially out of Japan, but you can even lump in some European games into this. Like I think of Wipeout specifically, mm-hmm. where it's it doesn't like you said it doesn't have the sort of polished aesthetic sensibilities of the West, but it's you know it's allowed to be grimier. It's allowed to be less clean. It can be a little bit less thought. Maybe not like uh, thought out, but it can be way more out there as a result. I mean, you can look at something like Silent Hill, for example. That is something that I don't think the Western game development sphere at that time could have even imagined. You know, this true, true nightmare world that is full of rust and decay, filled with a soundtrack that is literal noise at points you know famously there's like one there's one song in silent hill that's literally a dentist drill sampled (laughs) like as the final boss to emulate your radio uh going insane like the japanese were able i think to capture the imagination more than the western the western sphere could and it's not to say like Western games were like absent of this, but you saw it way more out of Japan. You saw mm. it with the ginormous influx influx of RPGs coming out of Japan. I mean, Xenogears is obviously one of them, but you can look at something, you know, like the the Final Fantasy trilogy on PS1, seven, eight, and nine, where they're all providing a unique experience. I mean, I can only imagine you know, even though I was technically alive, I was not cognizant as a, you know, two-year-old about what Final Fantasy VII was, but I can only imagine what it was like to see Final Fantasy VII for the first time as a Westerner, like, on mainstream television, because that's where they were advertising it. Like, they, I believe they advertised it on, like, late night one night. Yeah, I remember seeing those ads on TV and thinking at first, like, is this is this like a show that's coming or is this a movie? It was just electrifying and mysterious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you go from very detailed 16-bit graphics a few years ago. Now you have this 3D magisphere as it were where it's this like decrepit cyberpunk uh midgar juxtaposed with like these grandiose complexes of like cloning and you know memory loss and war and harvest you know kind of like we were saying earlier with echo you know harvesting the planet's resources like it felt so dramatic and like apocalyptic but it was being presented like as a thing that everyone could play and you know you could also look at like you know final fantasy 8 being this like very operatic love story you know about you know spanning across time and all that stuff or nine being this like classical european fantasy advance adventure i feel like only you know the japanese studios at the time were able to sort of go that far with their concepts i mean and that's just final fantasy like you have Parasite Eve being this like mishmash of like libidinal creations <laughs> with like Aya, uh, you know, with her uh, her her jacket where she's not wearing a shirt and you just see her boob, like just her cleavage right there with her leather jacket or in her like nightgown running around with a pistol defeating eldritch horror monsters in New York City on Christmas Eve. Like, 
you know, something like I could not see like I don't know Naughty Dog at the time creating. Yeah. You know, at the time the major Sony American studios were making like you know Crash Bandicoot or um, Spyro or stuff like that. Meanwhile, J- Japan is already in like gigabrain territory because of like the shift to 3D. Yeah. You know, we're getting out there concepts like Metal Gear Solid, um, just completely fully embracing like the new possibilities of 3D and high quality audio and the fact you could have voice acting or you could have literal like. Uh, sampled music in your music, like literal music uh, in your games now. Like, I don't know. The, the, funny enough, the closest equivalent that I can think of that came from the West is like Twisted Metal, where it's this. Yeah. Really... That was one of my big PS1 favorites, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, where it's this Twisted Metal has this very slapped together, really rough and dangerous aesthetic mixed with like rob zombie music yeah i was just about to say it's it's the cargo shorts and oakley's shade <laughs> and 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 tribal tattoos <laughs> game game out there I, I i i stand twisted metal fans yeah thank goodness you're you're automatically i mean you're already one of my favorite people <laughs> but now you're even more so uh twisted metal stands rise up um but you know the point being is like you see just the what literally feels like especially in hindsight the the tsunami that came to the west in terms of just creative just creative freedom that was coming from overseas and it's really it really did it's a case of like we did not know how good we had it until it was gone sort of thing mm-hmm. and it, i mean it did continue into the ps2 but it's like with the ps1 it really felt like like it felt like a sea change had happened where now Japan is like at the forefront of creating new and exciting experiences that, you know, for the most part, you could only play on PlayStation. Yeah. Like they weren't with a, with a PlayStation, they, they were not doing the thing that they had done previous consoles where, you know, they were trying to kind of meet, American audiences at their level, you know, mm-hmm. it, it all throughout like the eight bit and 16 bit, uh, Nintendo and, uh, Sega consoles, they were always like, you know, trying to pay close attention to like, okay, what's acceptable and what's, what's marketable to the American, uh, audience right now mm-hmm. and trying to kind of, you know, trying to kind of meet that. I mean, they, you would still see some stuff out there that would push the envelope a bit, but not not that much. And then the PS, yeah, the PS One was where they just straight up went like, we it's like this kind of like we have lightning in a bottle, and we're we're just going to do this crazy stuff, and whether you like it or not, you're mm-hmm. going to like it. Yeah, like heck, you could even look at something that is very made. For- for American audiences like Resident Evil, but mm-hmm. like Resident Evil was so different from what Western studios could or would create. Like, I mean, Resident Evil created a new genre. Like, 
Capcom more or less birthed in a complete genre right from the get-go of the PS2's, you know, genesis, as it were. And you can see, like, all the sort of ripple effects where now it, it took until the PS2 for, like, Western devs to even explore these concepts or even push the, the envelope, you know, like Max Payne or Grand Theft Auto or uh, stuff like Manhunt or games of that uh, adult sort of mindset. Like, Japan was already, like, we have graduated from two dimensions. Our entire thought process and worldview has now become the third dimension. And what what sort of possibilities are capable or possible in three dimensions like what sort of things can we create and i mean it's just like you look at it i mean i'm just looking at my shelf because it reminds me of it's a good reference but it's like you have like wild arms which is like a weird western western rpg or uh as i mentioned like tekken which is i still think like the coolest fighting game franchise ever uh mm-hmm. or uh even out there experimental titles like uh parappa or umjam alami or vib ribbon even though vib ribbon never came to america but you know you had these cert- the ga- the games that were even playing with the idea of like can music be interactable mm-hmm. in, a, in a game sphere like in my mind japan was already thinking beyond just the simple concept of like you are man get to point from point a to point b and blow up everything sort of thing which isn't bad mind you like i'm not here to be like you know i'm not here to say you know your favorite western game is like you know stinky dark sometimes sometimes that's all you want sometimes all you crave is the costco (laughs) hot dog exactly you you just want your your quick satisfying meal but sometimes you you can look to you know the you look eastward and you see like these really refined or really out there ideas i mean I was, you know, because I've lately been on like a Gran Turismo or old Gran Turismo binge, and it's like Polyphony Digital was like crafting the car show, like ethereal playground with Gran Turismo one and two. Like suddenly, the 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 concept of like driving a car is now more than just driving a car; it's maintaining it while smooth jazz is playing as you're navigating these sort of abstract city maps trying to get to your new location and it becomes like a it comes like a place for your mind to like relax in rather than just be like it's need for speed and i'm like you know doing three laps around the track in my lamborghini now it's like Mm -hmm. i'm i'm driving my souped up honda 1996 honda civic (laughs) around you know around special track five like at night uh it's now more like a a place than i can occupy and not Mm -hmm. like here's generic location here's car all right do two laps sort of thing like that's the cool thing that you got to experience with the PS2 or the PS1 
and Japan sort of giga braining uh, at that time. Um, it's like I, I was like going through just a list today of just like what are some like classic Japanese like PS one games like Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Oh, of course. I was just I was just thinking about I was about that was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, it's just like okay, you get to play as Dracula's son in like the most you know, uh, in the most labyrinth labyrinthian uh, hellscape of a location as like you're rocking out to music and doing like moonwalker slide attacks or whatever. Yeah. It's like this just total like embodiment of like what what it, it comes down to like what can we do. Like, mm-hmm. which I, I have always love about that era. Like, you can you can even look at something as early as Ridge Racer One or like Battle Arena Toshinden, I, which I can't remember if it's American. It might be American or Japanese, but point being is like even from the get go, like these studios, what far and wide across the island nation, were already like toying with what could happen what 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 sort of liberties are we now allowed it that weren't ps2 levels of fidelity and facsimiles to uh, real life but they're not we're no longer trapped in two dimensions it's that really fantastical period in gaming and i i love for the love of I try to remember who said this, but it was featured in David Osborne's book uh, that I love that was themed around Death Stranding. And it's about the artifice. And it's like, as soon as you add more to the artifice, you start to lose the magic of the presentation. And it's like with the PS1 being rudimentary 3D, where it's it's close to what we like, this character kind of looks like a real person, but doesn't look kind of like a real person. Or, you know, this environment looks very close to like a building, but you notice like, oh, hey, the walls are shifting because the PS1, <laughs> the PS1 couldn't properly judge distances. So it's like constantly fixing itself on the spot. Yeah, I so, remember that. Like yeah, the the I think it was the Z buffer because the PS1 didn't have a Z buffer on it. Um, but you know, the sort of early 3D allowed for the mind to fill in the blanks about what am I being shown on here. Rather, you know, nowadays when we have hyper realism and we can render the f- sweat glands on a character's <laughs> face, and it's like. I don't know about that. Like mm-hmm. my timeline uh is flooded with just these like random gamer accounts praising Horizon Forbidden West's new DLC. It's the most beautiful looking game of all time. It's like I don't I don't fucking care. It yeah, looks- it's it's just there's nothing about it that is it's like okay, conceptually I guess, you know, it's it's kind of memorable. It's it, like yeah, you're you're hunting these robot wildlife, dinosaurs. Wildlife. It, it should be cool, but they make it the most boring thing in life. And the mm-hmm. only thing that people talk, like literally I'm saying this to everyone listening. It's like, if you look up any sort of talking points about 
Horizon Forbidden West, it is literally people talking about graphics, nothing else, nothing mm-hmm. of note or interesting discussion. It's just like, wow, look at the graphics. I'm like, cool. Like, uh, what else is there? But you look 25 years in the past, almost 30 years in the past now, and there's way more captivating experiences. Like, I could count on the top, you know, off the cuff, you know, that are more thought provoking than something like horizon, which at this point is like my mortal enemy of this show. Like I make a point of like shitting on that franchise, mm-hmm. like every week and it, it utterly deserves that at every waking moment. <laughs> but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, damn, you could look at something like Klonoa or something like Klonoa on the PS1 versus it's just like dreamscape like on the surface it's this like cutesy platforming game but it intersplices like like a childhood nightmares with this sort of basic 3d landscape or or something as very very rudimentary like jumping flash where it is abstract shapes that are meant to represent something but my mind goes to places that like become even more magical and fantastical as a result. And it's just so, man, it's just looking at all these PS one games. I'm like, I'm like scrolling through a list right now. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, intelligent, uh, intelligent cube, intelligent cube, or there's like the one famous game called Kula world or Ridge Racer 4, or Xenogears, Chrono Cross, uh, Vagrant Story, or... That was another really incredible one. Like It was kind of like a Squaresoft playable comic book or something. Yeah, Vagrant Story is another one. Very very much akin to Einhander, where not enough people really understand what makes that one special. Uh, and even though it may have not like hit the mainstream, you see its influences at, at times in other games, even in like Final Fantasy, uh, like a the current Final Fantasy 16, like the, the all the developers are like they either have said Vagrant Story has been an influence on them, or they worked on Vagrant Story. So it's like, damn, okay, you're cool, you're based. You're 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 number one in my book, um, man. There's like late Legend of Dragoon, uh, Legend of Legalia. I think was another Japanese game. I can't remember though. Uh, shit, it's like it's like literally uh, Final Fantasy Tactics or damn, it's like going Dino Crisis. All these fascinating and really out there concepts that only. We're coming to us from the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, damn, we really had it good, and we don't. We really don't know what we were. We missed, or we're missing. Per I se. mean, it's like we're just you know men among the ruins at this point. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. My my <laughs> trying empire, to. I mean, my empire yeah, of dirt. Like it's the best indie games out there are the ones that in some way recapture a bit of that that period's magic yeah i mean 
it is kind of amazing what that little box did not just speaking purely from its own point of view of of the time period it was at but like the legacy that it left behind or left for the future in that it really opened up the possibilities of like new and exciting ideas for gaming you know i'll always point to silent hill one being one of the most abs you know just really out there concepts and the fact that it was like marketed so heavily on you know western tv and such and it became like like a two million copy seller almost like that that is so strange and out there to me that like more than likely kids were playing this with like their parents and you're being presented this truly horrifying experience unlike that has ever been presented in a game ever and like that only could come from like a studio like konami and only through a system like the ps1 mm -hmm. so i think that is a good you know to wrap things up um japan make good games play play japanese games play these japanese ps1 games there's like there's like at least 50 Squaresoft games that are worth your time and money on this system. Uh, man, it's just like, not, I, I look at my shelf, I'm just like, damn, like there's so many cool things. Like, how, how, how like the PS1 was only like a thing for like five years and we got that many like yeah. qual quality genre defining experiences. That was where the wave crested and then pulled back. And it crashed in the PS2, and then the PS3 was kind of the aftermath um, where the shift to HD graphics and uh, the cell processor broke a lot of Japanese studios, unfortunately. And only now are we kind of sort of a little bit getting back to it a little bit. Um but yeah, like nothing can compare to PS1 era games. Really, they're wholly unique. And I think, unless you have anything else to say, Reagan. Um, no, other than, you know, that was a period where, unfortunately, because I didn't get uh, a PS1 or a game, that, a, a console that could play PS1 games until just after the end of the PS1 era, like... It was something like I, 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 I kind of had to experience it from the outside, mm -hmm. uh, or in a sort of delayed effect, and I always kind of lamented that. I always felt like I was just kind of like cargo culting my way through, <laughs> you know, the ruins of a of a golden age in gaming. <laughs> you're you're walking with your copy of Twisted Metal, being like, uh, "Man, this is the good times." Nothing. Mm -hmm. Nothing else can top Sweet Tooth and an ice cream truck firing homing <laughs> missiles, which is true. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, just looking through this list today, I'm just like, wow, uh, kind of need a return. But I think it's I, I, I always encourage people to just go back and try to play it, whether it's emulating or finding a copy, a, a game, a used game store like doing your best to like know the history because 
you get a greater sense, a greater sense of appreciation of just the excitement that was tangible back then. So I think this is a great time to segue into the game of tonight, which is Einhander. Looking at uh, the playthrough of Einhander on my TV, it's like, wow, this the game looks beautiful. Like, with just even at 720p, I'm just like, the, the visuals hold up so well. Like, yeah. it's such a gorgeous game to look at. <clears throat> yeah. And the audio in it is just. Oh, it's on another level, but we'll get to that. Uh, I feel like that deserves its own little segment. Yeah. Um, but yes, Einhander, 
the often forgotten kind of experiment of Square back in the day on the PS1 originally came out in America on May 5th, 1998. It is a, you know, it's a classic shmup. It's a scrolling shooter game. Uh, and it's one of the more fascinating shmups in my view, because it's a shmup that has a very fascinating story set up. It has a very unique mechanic. It's extremely bite-sized too. Like you can beat this. If you're good at the game, you can beat it in an hour. Like it's really unique at the time so much though, that possibly it turned it, deterred people from giving it a shot you know it this was the only game in this sort of potential franchise it came out in the gluttony of square uh square rpgs at the time but i think so much of what is inside it i want to say inside like the umlaut a like inside uh but yeah, the, the so much of the stuff that is inside Einhander really makes it special, in my opinion. So, Reagan, I want to know, what do you think of Einhander? Gosh. All right. My my first encounter with Einhander was, I think I was in probably eighth grade or ninth grade, I think. And I was with my dad and one of my friends at a, I think it was Fry's. Mm-hmm. It was either Fry's or the Good Guys, which was one of those chains that, one of the, back in the, the you know that period in the nineties when we had just endless variety of electronics stores and whatnot, mm-hmm. got b- bought up later by Comp USA. I just remember it was in it was in some big electronics store where it was really dark inside and. Mm-hmm. This was be- this was before everything started trying to imitate like the Apple store look, which I hate. I mean, yeah. I, I like I don't mind it when it's Apple. I hate it when it's yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and as always, you know, while, while my dad is looking around for you know business uh, computer related stuff, the f- what's the first thing I do? I go to wherever there is a a floor model console out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to, you know, play that. Like I remember, I would I would always try to play Star Fox sixty four, whenever I had the chance at a store. Um, this time there was a P there there was a PS one out and Einhander was on there, and I just remember like it from the very the the opening when you know you hear the air raid sirens mm-hmm. and just this boom kind of like operatic Wagnerian intro with this opera singer, you know, kind of darkly these these sort of like dirge vocals Mm -hmm. as your ship descends over this, this gigantic skyscraper with searchlights swooping everywhere. And you hear a German loudspeaker, you know, saying, (laughs) contact <laughs> and it's just like it's just this uh, complete like audio immersion that i very rarely uh mm-hmm. experienced in any other games there's a there's a few more games these days that do it really well like high fleet high fleet is extremely good at that 
Yeah. Um, but for its time, like when 900 did that, it was just, I just could not believe like that level of, you know, you're used to like, okay, you, you know, you're wowed by the gameplay and graphics or maybe the story yeah. or whatever. And the audio is just kind of there to just sort of keep, keep things moving well, with 900. It just like, it sucked you into the world that you don't really get a, a whole lot of information about. And it just, I, I was, I was obsessed with it and I didn't even have, I wasn't able, even able to have the game for many mm-hmm. years uh, mm-hmm. so much later. Um, and yeah, it just, it, and also like, I always liked uh, side scrolling shooters. Like I, I loved like Gradius and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, the top down bullet hell type shooters like 1942 and mm-hmm. all that, all that stuff. So Einhunter like fit a really comfortable spot for me but it took like a very familiar uh genre or game type and Mm -hmm. did something that i just would never have thought possible yeah it einhander really is a unique little entity because i can't really think of any other ones that kind of set up so much grandiosity in right from the Mm get-go but also the mixture of just like setting you in a completely both familiar and also alien concept of a world like so the einhander the setup of einhander which you know it kind of just throws you straight into it it doesn't really bother to explain it i mean much like many games at the time most of that stuff was going to be in the manual mm-hmm. uh but einhander takes place in a fictional reality where the earth colony sodom and the moon colony selene are at war with each other uh they first had the the first moon war which dist- which basically resulted in the absolute destruction of earth and in its replacement they create a a singular city uh where uh, seemingly only everyone comes together and I guess seemingly Germany wasn't destroyed because every every earth force speaks in German uh, in the empire on Sodom and so in the so now in the game of Einhander it recounts the second moon war where you play as an Einhander pilot which an Einhander which the word translates to just one-handed, which is a reference to a sword. So and it encapsulates the spaceship that you fly, you know, the you know, I think of the Endymion, I think that's how you pronounce it, the Endymion, yeah. the the Mark II, where you look like a normal spaceship, but you have the the mech I forget the proper term, but you have basically have an arm that dangles to basically be a second weapon. So there, mm-hmm. there's your one-handed sort of thing. But <clears throat> you play as an Einhander pilot, which is a special class of pilot and spaceship, which is basically your glorified kamikaze pilot, which really kind of amps up the stakes from the get-go. Like, it really amps up the tension because, you know, you basically die in one hit. So it really does feel like you are... You are the uh, all the glass cannon per se going in to destroy the supposed enemy of of the Celine, of Celine, 
and you know that first level was incredible like just dropping you into that blade runner city with all that all the neon sign like the ghost in the shell like signs everywhere on the buildings that you can like destroy and then there's that famous uh billboard with the woman so this is lieben fallen volks volks i can't remember the full thing it was like volks gas max gas masken yeah yeah to live to die the people's gas mask yeah it has is- this kind of paul verhoeven sort of vibe to it you know that sort of <laughs> dark comedy in the in-game advertising yeah it it's such a cool location and you know you're onslaughted with all these various enemy types you know in a classic shmup segment but what i love about einhander is that it kind of elevates it not only in the story setup but also like in the fact that it occasionally from going from 2d it will go to like i sort of an isometric 2.5d perspective to really I think emphasize the sort of foes that you're going against or this it really puts these landscapes into perspective you know you really do feel like you're traversing the planet or these large military outposts or these ginormous uh mecha bosses you know which are all german animal pretty for the most part most like german animal names like griefa or drachen uh and they all i love how they all bark at you in german mm-hmm. uh you know i always think of drakens one where it's like diese ist eine warnung entladen uh, sie allen ihre waffen you know this is a warning uh unload all your weapons yeah uh, it's just like yeah i'll unload all my weapons yeah they have the, i mean they have this again this this touches on the to the distinctly japanese character of the game where you know, you're met with a boss and they issue like a taunt at you. Like it's like a boast. It's a sort of like fist of the oh, North yeah. star dragon ball Z, like, <laughs> like <laughs> my, my power is more powerful than your power. Kind of, <laughs> I kind of like, vibe, you know, it's like, it's, it's like WWF type of energy. Yeah. <laughs> like there's the one boss, um, uh, Garnella, which is, is like, just says, I'll send you to hell yeah. right before you fight it. Uh, or it's like final where it's like just die you coward like mm-hmm. there's so much that that is a trope that i love present in a lot of japanese games like i in my mind i always immediately go to devil may cry because the devil may cry bosses will just like give you these shakespearean monologues about how you're just a pesky little worm and then dante's just like flock off featherface and it just shoots shoots them in the face with a gun and then he like you know karate motions to him like uh that 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 uh scratches a very part a specific part of my monkey brain that is just like oh yeah now i'm hyped for this fight and einhander really it's amazing too because it's like you i want to emphasize this game is not easy it is actually fairly challenging like as I said, you can beat this game in an hour if you're good. Like, and you have to like learn this game. You have to be punished very much. Like, it it really kind of puts you into that kamikaze mindset of like, wow, like I'm really sent here solo, and I'm here to be cannon fodder for the most part for my empire. Like, 
the lives of the Einhander pilots don't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's mm-hmm. more so like we are throwing every resource we have in this fight. Like it doesn't matter what happens. We have to just utterly destroy the Earth Kingdom or the Earth Empire. And the 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 difficulty adds like another layer to the storytelling, I feel. It's not present and it's not telling you up front, but it's kind of that unique thing of games where it's like the gameplay feeds back into the overall themes of it all. Yeah, I think what- that was the that was the first shmup to really do that because every other, you know, uh side scrolling shooter like that, the you know, the screen filling up with bullets and making you die a hundred times before you beat the game. Like that was, mo- that was mostly there to just make sure you kept putting quarters into the yeah. machine. Whereas, totally. you know, and there wasn't really a story reason for, or a, a, a thematic reason mm-hmm. for why it was in there in 900. Like you find out later on, uh, uh during the final twist in the game that, you know, the war exists just to perpetuate itself pretty yeah. much. Mm-hmm. And you're just fodder for it and you've outlived your purpose. And it's it like, it's like something that we all just kind of take for granted as part of the shmup genre. Mm-hmm. Actually. Yeah. It, 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 it reinforces the game's theme, which I just have not seen that done before. And no, not like, really done since. Yeah. I mean, like most shmups operate in, they're like, at their core they're very pure game game like gamey games like Mm -hmm. they're there to sort of facilitate this uh the goopy goblin gamer brain thing of score go up therefore i i am feeling good and i'm blowing things up sort of thing and even games of that time like i think of on the saturn there's like radiant silver gun or even later on like the gamecube uh at least I think I think it might have been on other systems, but like Ikaruga, um, where it's not like it's just pure action. Like it's just mm-hmm. it, it's not concerning itself per se with like how will how like do the mechanic. It's not even thinking grander beyond the concept of its game. Meanwhile, Einhounder is like I don't know if deconstructing is the proper term for it, but like they're the developers at the time were clearly thinking like well shmups operate on a certain level what if we make a story that kind of feeds into itself like the whole act of playing it is feeding into the story and your drive to get to the end to get the high score and then once that twist happens as you said later at the near at the basically at the very end you know it all it, it just clicks like it just makes sense like i it feels so natural and but at the same time i'm like i would never expect a shmup to like actually make me think like mm-hmm. that's something shmups like are not like they're not a thinking man's game i guess you could yeah. say like not in the traditional sense they're not like rpgs or like third person adventures or rts's or you know stuff like that Shmups are like the most like male brained, like I must beat you in order to get my trophy sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Einhander is it's such a cool, like 
uh, ex exploration on this the whole concept of a shmup. Like, I can't, I can't even think. Even like small Japanese only ones. Like, uh, I think it's called like Kartos in which was a Dreamcast shmup. Not even it. I think fully goes to the level that Einhunter tries to go for or you know accomplishes doing um yeah in the sense of the the depth to the world building that they did in it which you know for them like they don't really have to do that much they did they probably didn't have to write a ton of stuff they just have just a few incredibly simple and effective story pieces and then they just base everything off the game off mm -hmm. of that like the whole concept of the the earth empire, you know, they speak German and obviously, you know, the immediate assumption is like, Oh, is this like some sort of like, you know, future Nazi type dystopia? Mm -hmm. It's I, I, I imagine it like from the games vibe and the designs of the various bosses and stuff and the way the cities look, I picture it as being more like, like that kind of like nineties Eurotech kind mm -hmm. of kind of German. It's like, it's like the high, turtleneck collars, post craft work, mm -hmm. you know, kind of th those kinds of Germans have taken over the, the hyper <laughs> autistic engine, you know, super engineering types. Yeah, exactly. You know? it, it's, it's like that. It's like a jet, the Japanese idea of German innovation or something. Yeah. It, that's always like a mat, like an interesting thing. And it seems to only come out of Japan when they make something where the setting or the iconography is not Japanese when they're like Silent Hill, for example, you know, tries to do Americana through the eyes of Japanese by like sensibilities. So it's like with Einhander, it's kind of like, well, the Japanese are trying to do like a Gundam esque drama, war drama in sort of through their eyes of like, well, what would a, you know, and this is the nineties too, for them, what would like a nineties German empire, uh, do if it was like the last bastion of civilization on earth. And what you get is like this weird techno techno sphere. It kind of weirdly enough reminds me of, um, one of the modern deus ex games. Uh, it's the seek, mankind divided i think is the name mm -hmm. where it's like set in prague and like cyberpunk prague and where it's just like all these classical type buildings interspersed and woven with sort of what i think a lot of people think of when cyberpunk we think of like akira or blade runner or ghost in the shell it's like that deus ex game does that and einhander is doing that too it it's a fascinating little thing that only japanese things do like i i don't see american game studios or heck you know media entities create having that unique thing happen and west in uh european games very kind of still feel like they're in their own lane yeah they're um, kind of like afraid of their own shadow in a way yeah afraid of their own reflection yeah i mean i don't know european studios it's like either we get something out of the uk or it's Eurojank eastern european devs like there's no in between yeah, uh, yeah. Or, or ubisoft which i guess is france but 
I, I, I think of something like uh, the Einhander world kind of feels like a more militaristic version of the Wipeout universe, where it's just this, <laughs> like, instead of piloting one-armed robot, you know, spaceships in the sky, they build these elaborate uh floating race cars and you have like the <laughs> chemical brothers playing like yeah <laughs> it's the wipeout and einhander feel kind of similar in that sense it's like different interpretations i guess where wipeout became the like a uh, entertainment uh view of it all mm. well einhander's like well what if we depict like the end of civilization for the most part yeah and it's like and it's this still nonetheless like even though the earth is a wasteland like it's still depicted as kind of like there's still like a yeah the warehouse is crumbling but we're still raving in it kind of energy where it's like and it's not the the kind of like grimdark like wolfenstein kind of german empire it's like you know there's the cityscape has you know different languages you see arabic and chinese and japanese so it's implied that like whoever was left from humanity came to this colony in germany or whatever in german is just the lingua franca pretty much yeah and it's yeah and it's i i wonder like how much of the world design was just done sort of haphazard and not really thought through and Mm -hmm. because they don't give you that much story information you can't really tell if there are any inconsistencies in the game itself because you automatically just want to fill in those blanks yourself and so there's nothing to complain about yeah it it, it's interesting it's such an interesting little game for that fact because it it really lets your imagination kind of craft the possibilities of what is going on like you're, you're flying through that opening city level it's just like what you know these people in the city you never see obviously you know you only get the buildings and it's like it's like a weird it's just an alternate reality of like a modern war but still kind of in like rooted in classical ideas or at least 20th century war imagery like you know the fact the einhander is like you know the you know the fighter planes flying through trying to wipe out these various militaristic weaponry and it, it allows you to sort of imagine a lot about a, a lot of what's going on. And I think, you know, I think that creates the, a lot of the magic of Einhounder is that there is enough room for us to fill in the blanks with our own sort of weird ideas of what is happening. Like what, <laughs> How does this like one unified kingdom operate as it's got like seemingly every multicultural entity operating within this this like uh city walls and German is the only way they could communicate with each other? Yeah. Um it, it it's interesting too, because I mean it's like square, you know, the the at the time, you know, they're creating these like mind men, mind melding, mind expanding RPG experiences that are just like breaking convention and ideas of what a game could tell in its story. And it's like even that drip feeds into something as small as Einhander, 
this like short little hour two hour game and that is that's just so cool to me that like they could have phoned this game in they could have mm-hmm. really just phoned this game and it's like oh yeah it's just our shmup like of blah di da di da like but no they actually went out of the way like if you, you know you when you beat the game you get all that art gallery stuff of all the yeah. mechs and their high beautiful glory you know there's also like the images of like the two uh 100 pilots that i don't think are ever mentioned in the game but like they drew out like oh yeah this is what an 100 pilot looks like in the suit and you know it, it kind of evokes to me like images of uh uh what is it uh man i'm blanking on it it's the sega virtual not virtual uh, like time crisis um like all these like uh arcade like gun shooters like this sort of futuristic uh police force in like just the language in the designs like it's it's clear that they put in a lot of thought into like the backbone of this universe and when in reality they didn't have to yeah and even even just the concept for the einhunter ship itself it's like you know, in every shmup, there's always the the inevitable question of like, well, you know, you just sort of uh, take it for, you just sort of accept it in the genre that, you know, you just, you fly over the glowing power up that gives you the next weapon. You don't really question it. But in 900, like there's an actual, like plausible in-world explanation for how you're collecting these more upgraded weapons Mm-hmm. The like the the Einhander's unique property is that its gun arm allows it to snatch the <laughs> the weaponry of defeated enemies as as it's tumbling by, and mm-hmm. through some you know technical wizardry, uh, you know some kind of incredible innovation of the Moon Colony, it's able to immediately adapt and start using whatever weapon system it just grabbed from the enemy you just destroyed. So even just like that little bit of thinking out, like, you know, what if we actually gave like a design reason for what's happening uh, Mm -hmm. when your ship collects a new weapon? Like that to me is just brilliant. It's, it's so simple. Yeah. And it's just, but nobody thought to do it. Yeah. In a way, and this also extends to the various mini bosses and boss designs literally down to like these bosses have names german names for animals even the einhonders have a very like animal shape to it all like primitive organism sort of look to them i mean the standard einhonder that you pilot the Eddie, the Endymion, the Endymion uh, Mark II, like it looks like a wasp with like uh, like a human hand at its bottom, and like you know it flips it up and down for you know when it's holding a cannon like sniper rifle or the homing missiles or a literal laser sword. Like yeah, it just feels like you said it feels so thought out and it it adds like a proto organic element to this world which is so cold and metal and you know just industrial that even the the mechas have like the mechas have adapted and 
became like the only organic life on in this conflict outside of obviously the pilots and that is really interesting in especially just as you play it you just go through all these various warehouses and buildings and it feels like of a world that is like both inhabited by humans but like you never see the humans you only hear the humans and yeah it's like the machines that they command are the characters which Mm -hmm. i find fascinating the only other game i know of that really did something like that was homeworld where you never see a human character except in like a kind of like a still image and a couple cut scenes even then you never see a face yeah and just you form an emotional connection to these very primitive polygonal shapes instead which i think is a tremendous mm-hmm. beat of just really focused theme in a game yeah the and for me the one game that reminds me of that idea it's a modern game was near automata where even though these characters are humanoid in appearance and they behave like humans they're not humans they're robots or androids or you know these creations of humanity when humanity is gone it's no longer exists and einhander and near kind of feel they both evoke that sort of idea of like the war will keep going on even when humanity has ceased to exist where like these print these complex machineries are you know doing these acts on behalf of us but like humanity's sort of like genetics and thought processes are all still present even though it's it's just machine seemingly machines fighting each other yeah and and they kind of like the machines sort of they multiply humanity's urge towards war Mm-hmm. And just make it so that the war in Einhander just it just it it has to exist because it needs to exist to perpetuate itself. Like its own existence mm-hmm. demands that it exists into infinity. Yeah, and it even makes it very evident through the game's story, especially when you hit the twist in the final stage when after you try to destroy the rocket ship uh by yourself and you do it if you if you destroy it in the such an awesome scene like that launching ramp just goes on forever yeah that's such a cool design too i have it's like just the rocket sled for the uh the spaceship but and it's juxtaposed on arguably one of the most beautiful backgrounds Mm -hmm. of the entire game it's one of the few i think it's the only stage that actually has like light like you see a glimpse of like sunlight in the color palette in the background which is a it's like this cream white with this magenta purple pink with the navy blue sky like it's so stunning and it it kind of frames what you understand at that point of the story where it's just like i am the kamikaze pilot i'm going to do the you know the final act to put an end to this war you know going rising into the sunset to destroy the spaceship and then it's the einhander reveals like its hands and it's like no actually 
you were just literally a test subject for us to sort of create the next generation of Einhander, and you are now going to be terminated uh, yeah. for the. And they're they're like art. They're like AI Einhanders. Yeah, like it. Like rolling back onto the concept we were talking about, it's like it feels like humanity's desires have been implanted into the ai machine and it's like war will continue no matter what happens and that's like where the one really interesting about einhander's story comes in is that it ties into your goals as the player with the pilot now granted you know the pilot is for lack of tense of purposes really just like a character model there's no character per se with the pilot that you are but it still feels like there's a connection between you, the player, and the pilot himself, where it's like, you know, I've endured literal hell, continue doing all these continues to and you know, keep the fight going. It's like, and you're telling me like my fight is over. It's like, hell no. I'm going to see this through to the very end. And which means turning on your own, you know, your own empire, the moon empire. And in arguably one of the coolest set piece stages like wow. ever in a game where you're flying around space as the perspective keeps changing around yeah. all the time, like to the point where it actually feels somewhat disorienting. Um, and then you f- and I love how the game shifts its sort of uh, classical references away from German. And so when you're fighting uh the you know the moon colonies uh forces it's all greek references mm-hmm. you know you have like the final bosses uh the final boss is hyperion uh there's like uh i think there's some enemies just called aos and like i love how it flips the script on like its sort of inspirations uh visually and story wise to go from this like german this weirdly cyberpunk german thing to this weird like cyberpunk classical greek thing in space on the moon like yeah it's like the vaporwave empire on the moon oh yeah and um which ties in i think it's time to properly give credit to the soundtrack of this game which is and i don't say this with you know i when i say this i not saying it with hyperbole this is like literally one of the best soundtracks ever made in a game like it is nutso like how how both it's hype inducing it's also atmospheric it's also foreboding like it 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 had it capture like captures elements of like hyper or not uh vapor wave at times like especially when it clashes with or mixes with the different environments that you traverse like this soundtrack is without a doubt one of the best ever made and what's even more kind of myth uh adds to the myth of this soundtrack is just like the composer uh Kenichiro Fuku- uh, uh Fukui mm-hmm. where he really hasn't made he's never been like the direct composer of any other game but funny enough, he was a part of Nobuo Omatsu's band, the Black Mages. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, wow. he was the I he was, was, he was the keyboardist. I... He was the keyboardist. 
I was a, I was actually a backstage photographer for Nobuo Uematsu oh. <laughs> once uh, for his band, The Earthbound Papas. So I wonder if I may have bumped into him. <laughs> this is, this that would have been crazy. <laughs> yeah, the, the Einhander connections run deep. Wow. Uh, without, I love that. But yeah, like Konichiro Fukui is like, this is like his one major project that he's done for video games. The only other one if I remember it correctly, was Lethal Enforcers, which was the arcade uh, game by Konami uh, that was famously at the center point of the the early 90s uh, Congress hearings about video game violence uh, because Lethal Enforcers had a revolver uh, uh, controller. Yeah, I remember that. Um, But I love... It just adds more like mysticism to this game where it's just like, yeah, this guy only did like this one game as his like, because the only other credits he has is like to being like uh, part of like a group of composers or like being an arranger or not being the main composer on a project. Like it really just kind of makes him even like more cool as a result in a weird way. Like, yeah, like he's been attached to like Final Fantasy twelve and uh like uh I'm trying to remember man, there's not many. Like I'm looking at his page right now. It's like Einhander all weirdly enough, he's a tied to All Stars Pro Wrestling or Front Mission Five, but like he's never been the lead guy except for like Einhander and you listen to the soundtrack it's like why didn't anyone else give him chances like i i listen to the soundtrack at the gym it's that like i was just about to say i listened i was for my morning workout today i listened to the whole soundtrack from start to finish yeah i can listen i can listen to like shutter which is like shutter or bad badlands or god any amount of song like streets like just gets me pumped up in a way that very few game soundtracks do. And I love that it also knows how to build anticipation. Like I'll go back to the first stage when you get introduced to the first boss and you go through that tunnel and it just kicks in the song while the boss taunts you. It's just like, that is like, Ooh, that is like, supreme like just setting the tone right there and man oh man i i I can't say enough about this soundtrack it is it's it's so good that it got i think in japan a cd release like they put it out on cds like i don't know how like it, it just goes back to what we were saying earlier just like the ps1 allowed for such incredible soundscapes not just uh in like sam like including a licensed song but crafting these hyper just these lush fully thought out trance dance you know uh breakbeat break you know whatever you want to whatever genre you want to attribute this to uh there's just it's so damn cool it's i i every time i listen to it i smile like it's that cool 
Um, it's pretty easy. To, I, I think most of the emulators out there for it or ROMs and out there for it work pretty stable. Yeah. So if anybody listening really wants to play it, which you should. It's it's it, it's pretty it's, easy to get up and running. It's um. Yeah, it's uh. You can actually play it on the Internet Archive of all places. Oh, oh really? Yeah, which, cool. yeah. Weirdly enough, uh, there's some PS1 games that you can play on the Internet Archive for whatever reason. Oh, no. Um, there goes my productivity. <laughs> Like uh when I just like uh there's another great like mecha shooter on the PS1. It was made by Polyphony Digital called um Omega Boost, which has also really amazing music. It has really amazing combat. I love Omega Boost so much. Uh you can also play that on the internet archive of all places. But I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so much that is cool about Einhander that it's sad to think like this game didn't get a sequel. It hasn't been re-released. It hasn't gotten like the sort of it hasn't been given its flowers yeah. for what it did so well back in 1998 that you know, I hope with this episode I can you know, at least convince maybe one person. You know, we can convince one person that's like, "Okay, I'm going to just boot this up and play it for an hour and that's it." Like to get one more person to like understand Einhander, I think is important because I don't, I think you and I don't want this game to be fallen to obscurity because uh, it doesn't deserve that. No, and, I, and I've got a hunch. I've got, I just have a feeling that it's ripe to get picked up by some indie game developer out there who is going to do something that's kind of a love letter to it. So we might in some way get a, a spiritual successor to it yeah and i think the time is right the time is right and we were talking before the episode it's like even though commercially square has kind of forgotten about this game the old heads as it were at square haven't forgotten about this game where it is referenced in a lot of games like um parasite eve 2 has a pinball machine based off einhander uh World of Final Fan <laughs> World of Final Fantasy has the Endymion as a boss fight and can be a companion for you. Um Final Fantasy 14 has a Endymion Einhander by boss fight. Uh and uh Kingdom Hearts 3 actually brought the original most of the original Einhander team together to make the gummy ship segments of Kingdom Hearts 3 down to literally including the Endymion as a playable ship and including one of the bosses as a secret fight that you can do. Like, it's clear that people within Side Square have not forgotten about this game, which is important. You know, the youngins, may, the Zoomers maybe won't get this game, and that's okay. They don't have to get it. But for the Millennials uh, or the 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 Zillennials, the Millennials or even anybody i think it's important to really play this game because there's nothing else like it really there is not uh so i mean do you have any other closing thoughts on einhander reagan you know i mean i i think i've already described everything that i liked and valued about the game itself i will say that the first time i was ever rick rolled <laughs> was in was in 2000 I think 2004 or five 
when I clicked on a Google videos link to what was advertised as a trailer for I hunter too. Oh, that's and I cool. thought, and I thought like, Oh my gosh, is this real? And I clicked on it and there's, you know, the, that opening music with the big operatic hit and everything and some pretty convincingly done, uh, you know, splash graphics. And then suddenly it cuts into, uh, you know, the Rick, yeah, Rick Astley. And I, at the time I had no idea what was happening. I thought, is this like a corrupted video file? Did somebody (laughs) mess it up? And so I spent like the next hour, like just searching around, trying to find the real trailer. And then I realized, uh, I'd been, had been done dirty. That 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 is cruel, unjust and downright criminal. Like, yeah. Kids these days will not know what Rick Rowling oh, di- did to our, our psyches. Gosh, seriously, um, like people who complain about, you know, words on the internet, making life <laughs> miserable, have no idea. It's like, you know, if you got like harassed or doxxed online, that is nothing compared to your first <laughs> Rick roll yanking the rug out from your, out from under your feet, right? As you thought you were going to get Ein Hunter too. Yeah. The, the sons of bitches did they, they are, they should be jailed to be honest in my in my world they should don't... be Cana- they should be canadian health cared <laughs> <laughs> so true i mean in the court of square enix law we're uh, far enough into the into and towards the end of the episode that i can say that without uh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. getting into too much trouble yeah the, hey this, this is your reward listener for getting this far <laughs> to get a canadian health care uh end of life service uh, <laughs> joke you know that that's what we that's what we provide here in the third place but i think we did this game justice and i can't thank you enough for joining me this was a delightful episode uh on a very special game so i thank you reagan for joining me tonight thanks again for having me on this was really excellent <laughs> yeah Love to no, come back on some other time listen you got a seat saved uh but I think that is where the recording will stop for tonight.